we have this kind of golden little opportunity here where, again, the, the, the laws haven't necessarily, but we used to call it the letter of the law and the spirit of the law when I was a deputy. So letter of the law, everything that we're talking about, it, it, we're in this golden opportunity zone. Spirit of the law, I'm not sure it's exactly that that's what they intended, but I'm all for taking advantage and exposing people to this legal re- regulated market that we have. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I am super excited to be the first to welcome you to April. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I already feel like April is consumed by 420, at least from my point of view, between the promotions and the sales. It's literally all me and my team have been talking about towards the end of March, now certainly going into April, all the planning phases. And the more mainstream cannabis goes, the more I see this day as an opportunity to not only celebrate and create some promotional opportunities, but to get our community involved in education and awareness to help normalize the plant. So at Restart this year, we're putting together a little pizza party with a local restaurant in town, shout out Salvation Pizza, for our customers and community to come out, enjoy some of our products, get educated, also have some fun, and of course, indulge in pizza when the munchies hit. But I really love being able to work with other local businesses and brands outside of the cannabis industry to be able to collaborate on events like this that really allow us to further our mission of destigmatizing cannabis. Plus, who doesn't love pizza and cannabis? I really think they go hand in hand. So I'm curious, are you doing anything similar for your brand this 420? What creative things are up your sleeves? Let me know by reaching out or tagging me or the podcast at To Be Blunt Pod in your marketing promos on social media. I'm just really curious. I would love to see what everyone gets into this year. Now, a little precursor to today's discussion. I think the interview is going to be a real eye-opening one and certainly hopefully one of many as we unpack what role law enforcement plays as cannabis law continues to evolve and open up. And before we get to my guests, let's look at some headlines from the news this week. And it definitely kind of ties into the overall discussion. But first up, some sad news. The Israeli researcher who is credited with discovering THC has died. Raphael Meshulam was 92 years old and during his life helped make many groundbreaking scientific contributions on behalf of cannabis, including initiating a CBD research in 1980 on the compound's effect to help with epilepsy. In addition to that, we can also thank him for the identification of the endocannabinoid system, which, if you do not know, is a classification of chemical molecules, neural receptors, and enzymes in the human body that help us maintain homeostasis and balance. I don't know if you knew this either, but the endocannabinoid system naturally produces cannabinoids in our body, which help regulate physical and psychological processes and is crucial in transmitting those chemicals throughout the nervous system. It's also why cannabinoids like CBD and THC also function and produce effects within our bodies, all thanks to the endocannabinoid system. So a big thank you to Raphael Meshulam for his continued work in this field and may you rest in peace. The next bit of news is an interesting statistic that we actually touch on in the interview and I thought it was really important to bring up because I think this topic is, like I mentioned earlier, like such a bigger discussion. And so while in the interview, we anecdotally assumed that cannabis consumption wouldn't have a negative impact on driving under the influence, this new study from the University of Illinois, Chicago actually looked at death certificate data and compared mortality rates in states that legalized recreational cannabis versus states that only provided access to medical cannabis. And researchers found a substantial increase in crash fatalities in four of the seven states that were part of the study with legalized recreational markets. And on average, the rec markets were associated with a 10% increase in motor vehicle accident deaths. 
So as you'll hear more so in the interview, I think this conversation is just beginning to be unpacked as we introduce more access and regulation in the industry, which presently doesn't really have a straightforward way of being dealt with in terms of how to prevent driving under the influence of cannabis, for example, to how do you identify it from a law enforcement perspective. So we also touch on the discrepancies when it comes to lab testing, because that also plays a role. You know, if you are going to have people consuming cannabis, how do you test from a field test? What does field sobriety look like? And then talking about the testing component of that. So because we were talking about lab testing in the interview, as I was doing some research, I came across an article from Arkansas stating medical marijuana patients sues lab testing and growers over alleged THC inflation. It goes on to say marijuana flower with higher concentrations of THC is more valuable, the suit reads. So there is incentive to exaggerate the THC content of flower. It can be sold for more money. As a result, cultivators often choose a lab that reports the highest THC value, a phenomenon known as lab shopping. Of course, the lab in question of the lawsuit, Steep Hill, said the litigation is likely to garner attention from across the U.S. as its claims mirror growing national concerns about THC inflation and lab shopping. And whether they did it or not, we can absolutely agree and acknowledge it is being done across the United States cannabis markets and more to come as I attempt to dig into that topic. But Like I said, a lot of these are touching on certain components that really underpin the whole conversation that we are going to unfold today with my guest on really what role is law enforcement playing when it comes to helping enforce cannabis policy, regulation, and legislation. Now, I thought this piece of news was interesting and noteworthy as well. A major alcohol industry association is officially backing federal marijuana legalization. They sent a letter to congressional leadership on Wednesday that implores lawmakers to, quote, regulate adult use cannabis at the federal level, end quote. That association is called the Wine and Spirit Wholesalers of America, and they said that the current conflict between state and federal law is not only causing adverse consequences for consumers and non-consumers of cannabis, but will also have a long-term public health and safety cost that are too great to ignore. The brief says that policymakers should draw from the experience of alcohol regulations to develop a model for marijuana that promotes industry competition, innovation, and public safety. Again, another thread of the conversation, right? We want to be able to have cannabis public, but we also want public safety. So how do you move forward given those two concerns? I'm really curious how thrilled you are to hear about though, how alcohol is interested in helping regulate cannabis. But then again, are we surprised? And by the way, in case you want to follow along with the smokable hemp ban, Bill 4918 had a hearing last week and it did move on to the floor. So more to come as we progress through Texas's legislative session this year. Okay, now on to today's guest. His name is Griffin Lott. Griffin and I are both here in Central Texas, and we cross paths through his work with the Texas Hemp Coalition, a cannabis advocacy board that I am the newly elected president of. What piqued my interest with Griffin is that he spent eight years with the Travis County Sheriff's Department, which is responsible for overseeing a lot of law enforcement for the city of Austin. And as an Austin cannabis gal, you know I had to peel back the curtain to better understand what law enforcement motivations are when it comes to cannabis offenses. What I didn't know was that he left that position and went to work in Colorado's cannabis market right at the time that state was opening up recreation and then would go on to work in Oregon continuing his cannabis work before recently deciding to move back to his home state of Texas and get involved in the growing hemp industry we have here. So... We dove into how he references his background to work with regulators and other law enforcement officers like when he had to help his then employer in Colorado navigate a DEA raid, how law enforcement officers are or are not dealing with cannabis offenses for personal possession, what that impacts when it comes to driving under the influence in regards to field sobriety and field sobriety testing, and how we can work to better bridge the gap to help law enforcement officers understand cannabis better. This is just the beginning of what I hope to be more dialogues about how we handle these relationships with the law so that we can be compliant and live in harmony together to the best of our abilities. Again, we do want public and consumer safety to be at the forefront. At least I do. But I can't wait for you to hear from Griffin himself. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Griffin to the show. 
My name is Griffin Lodge, and uh, I was raised in Wichita High School and college here in Central Texas. I went to Westlake High School, graduated from Texas State. And when I got out of college, I was looking for a job. And I knew, for one thing, I didn't want to be in an office. I'm not an office person. So I was looking around, and I got interested in being a game warden and went through that process a little bit, but then was told, because I'm a white male, there's quite a waiting list for that. So it might be 10 years or so until I get a job. And that led into, okay, what else is kind of like that? You know, it's park ranger. Okay, park ranger is kind of cool. Then I found out here in Travis County that the park rangers have to go through the same training as the sheriff's office and they get paid about 25% less. And so as I went through the process, I kind of said, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, let's do this. And so I went and joined Travis County Sheriff's Office, was hired directly through the street. So I worked patrol the entire time, never worked in jail. And at first it's kind of fun. You know, you get to drive car fast you get to have crazy stories i mean it's interesting over a couple of years though it starts to wear on your soul and the way i described it to other people is eats your soul one day at a time you know i mean you're just dealing with awful things on a daily basis and there's just no outlet for it because the stigma is there about mental health and i was told multiple times by supervisors so suck it up you're fine don't worry about it you know Bad dreams are normal, behaviors normal, just have some more vodka, you'll be okay. You know, that was kind of the general attitude. So after five years of this, realized, you know, I probably don't want to do this for another 25 or 30 years until I retire, so I need to find another outlet. I had a real good buddy that I've known since I was 18. He had family in Colorado, and he came back from a trip in 2010 and said, hey, man, they're really serious about the marijuana thing here in Colorado. We might want to look at this. And, you know, I'd smoke weed and high school and college a bit and didn't really see a big deal about it. And so I said, ah, you're crazy. But one night in an off-duty job, I started looking into it and I saw that Colorado had put it into their state constitution. So it's very difficult to remove and repeal. So I called him back a day later and said, hey, man, let's look into this. So a few months later, we went up to Denver and went to a cannabis conference and just kind of looked around and I was like, okay, hey, there is some legitimacy to this. This seems to have some legs. So why not pack up and move? And so I talked to my wife about it. I talked to my family about it. And at first I thought my mother would, my mother is the kind who never, she doesn't have a glass of wine. Okay. So I thought she would go crazy over this, but she said, well, you're not getting shot at anymore. Great. Do it. Let's go. So in January of 2012, my wife and I packed up and moved to Colorado. And within a couple of months, I had met a couple who owned at the time four dispensaries and one medium sized grow in Boulder. And they were having a girl, little girl pick up their money every day, which is a tune of eight to $10,000 per store. So we're talking thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. And this is all cash days. And so I talked to him like, hey, man, this is kind of dangerous. <laughs> and he said, well, hey, do you want a job? And so I said, sure. What do you need me to do? He goes, I need you to move my money around and move my product around. And that led into him. He started building grows for other people, designing labs, designing retail stores. So Over the next 18, 24 months, they grew to 16 retail locations and eight large grows spread throughout the state. And they had built dozens of grow facilities and lab facilities and that kind of stuff. And that led me into the management. And I had been growing in Colorado myself so I can have intelligent conversations with growers and learn about the cultivation side. And that led into more managing of the facilities, managing of the the you know regional managers of the retail stores and just checking up on the growers to make sure they're making making production quotas and quality control and all that kind of stuff. Then the interesting thing that happened in Colorado was one month before recreational went into effect, so this is November of 2013, the DEA raided 12 different companies in all throughout Colorado. Of course, this really freaked out the owner, and he made me go down there and deal with him. It was me and 13 DEA agents at a large grove slash dispensary in downtown Denver. Uh, and the first thing they said was, where's your warrant? They said, oh, it's, all, it's on the way. Okay, well, we'll wait for it to get here. And we had to wait about three hours for the warrant to show up. When it finally did, they ended up pulling all the cameras. They took all the cash, all the backstock, all the plants. And so this whole process is, is lasting six, seven hours by this point. And finally, when they were wrapping up, I said, okay, hey, D, are we, you know, what's, is our license suspended? Are we shut down? What? And he looks at me and goes, I don't give a fuck if you start growing again as soon as I leave. And I looked in line like, then why are you here? He said, because my boss came down here to tell me to take all your shit. It was one month before recreational went into effect. They just wanted to chop everybody's knees off and show everyone who was boss and the DEA still could do what they wanted to. And then, of course, that led to later that summer, U.S. Congress passed that bill that said, okay, if you're a licensed state facility, 
the DEA can't do that. No charges were ever filed. No one was ever arrested in any of those 12 companies that they raided that day. They just wanted to throw their weight around. So that freaked out the, the owners, of course. And so they ended up selling to an out-of-state conglomerate. And I went to go work for Native Roots for a while, which is still like the third or fourth largest chain in Colorado. They were still building at the time. They were still working on that their giant growth facility, the mothership. But I did the same sort of things for them, running their money around, running their cash, their products around, and doing some like management for them, just checking up on people. And then in 2015, I was offered the opportunity to go out to Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland, to build from scratch and start a 30,000 square foot indoor facility and become the general manager of that. And I thought that was a pretty great opportunity and always wanted to visit Pacific Northwest. So my wife and I discussed it. We moved up there. I had the facility up and running in three months. We were selling products four months later in July of 2016, and it just took off from there. And we were selling product as fast as we could grow it. So we finally made the decision last year that, it, you know, my, my wife's family is getting a little bit elderly. We live on 20 acres up here in Drippin, and it's getting hard for them to take care of uh, the fences and the animals and livestock and stuff like that. So we made the decision it was time to go ahead and come back to Texas. And with him, the way it is now here in Texas, I was able to do my job here now. So we figured it was time to come home. And that's why I'm here. Uh, got here last summer in July and look, immediately looked to join Texas Hip Coalition and be part of trying to lobby efforts to get things changed here. I'm working on building my own grow, which hopefully will be ready any week now to start growing hemp flowers here. Tex- Texas made organic cannabis. So that's, that's the goal. That is a very cool story that I... For the listeners, I didn't know that about you and in full transparency for, li- transparency for the listeners as well. We have crossed paths through the coalition, which like you mentioned, you're now a member of and I am part of as well and recently was announced as president. But I think the glimmers that I had heard about you was, you know, former law enforcement officer who's now getting into hemp. I had no idea about your tenure operating in Colorado and Washington, especially with the time frame that you were there during. I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like confronting the DEA agents, especially with your background, where you're like, I know how this goes. At the beginning in Colorado, it was absolutely nuts. I mean, I had my compliant, my state compliance guy on speed dial. I would call him up three, four, five times a day asking him questions. And I remember one specific one I was reading through the regulations and it said, marijuana must be transported in an approved transport container. So immediately my mind goes to, well, what qualifies as an approved transport? What is that? Well, I called him up and asked, he goes, you know what? I don't know. Let me get back to you. So he called me back later that day and he goes, okay, all we've come up with so far is it needs to be opaque. And I said, trash bag? And he goes, works for me. Uh, so we could call him with any little idea we had that was crazy. One time this owner wanted to put a greenhouse on top of his indoor grow on the roof. And so I had to call up the state again and go, hey, can we put a greenhouse on top of an indoor grow? He goes, I don't know. Let me get back to you again. <laughs> so we would always call him with questions about, can we do this? Can we do that? How about this? So it's amazing that he was responsive, though. I feel like at least maybe you can attest to this in Texas right now, but I think it's pretty consistent across the board. Getting a hold of like these regulators is really a game. So it's like they issue the law, the law out or the regulation out, but then like trying to qualify what the law or the regulation actually says, it's like nobody actually wants to then show up to clarify it. Well, I found it actually depends on the state. Colorado okay. was very accommodating, very helpful. They wanted to work hand in hand with owners and, and cultivators and retail owners to make it work. You could tell they definitely wanted us to help each other. Awesome. Washington was a complete opposite turn. They were downright hostile. Oregon, because I did some work in Oregon as well, they were more like Colorado. They were, I remember going down to a store in Asheville, Oregon, which is right north of the California border and helped them set up. And I showed up the day before their inspection. And I'm like, guys, there's no way you're going to pass. And they're, they said, what do you mean? I'd like, you don't have this. You don't have that. There's not a safe. I mean, it says specifically in the regulations, you must have a safe, must be bolted to the ground, must be under camera. They're like, well, we have a receipt for the safe that we bought. <laughs> and so I called my boss. I was like, yo, dude, this guy, these guys aren't going to pass just to let you know. I'll do my best, but no way. So we show up the next day and the Oregon guy goes, oh, you have a receipt. That's good. Just send me a picture when you're installed it and I'll go ahead and pass you. So contrast that with LCB in Washington, you know, they'd show up every time dressed like they were about to raid a meth house, you know, in tactical gear. And I had employees crying because they didn't know what was going on. They thought it was a raid. And I'm like, no, she's just here for her annual inspection. You know, it's not that big a deal. And 
In fact, it got so confrontational that I got into a verbal argument with the head of LCB enforcement, Justin Nordhausen, uh, about them carrying firearms. You know, I was like, what kind of training do you guys have? He goes, well, we shoot once a year. I was like, do they have any use of force training? Like, no. And I'm like, you guys are carrying firearms and potentially applying deadly force and you don't have any training on what force that's necessary. So cut to about a year later, the Washington legislature removed their ability to carry firearms unless they were going on actual raids. So, you know, it's just is, I think, a lot state based and in how the state views it and especially how the agency within that state is run. If they're anti-cannabis or they, they're pro-business, you know, they're, they're, I've run into both sides. of it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think it's always hope to have these people want to support and be helpful with the policy and regulation and legislation being rolled out. But like you said, it's kind of a case by case, state by state basis. Texas, I'm still kind of like, are they helpful or are they trying to just make it more difficult for us right now? You know, I remember when they originally did the, the teacup laws for the compassionate use program, you know, they wanted to station a DPS trooper at every cultivation facility 24 seven. And I'm like, that's insane. You know, I mean, he's going to spend 99% of his time watching plants standing there. Yeah. But like, what? If, why? Why? That's just a crazy regulation. But again, that kind of shows their overreach and that we don't trust you guys to do anything weird, you know, but as they get more educated, they tend to loosen up. For sure. And that was a big thing that I would always do in all of my facilities. For instance, when I was still in Colorado, we actually invited and they took us up on it, the Boulder Sheriff's Office, to come in and retrain their narcotics dogs to mm. the smell of cannabis. So they would take little packets of heroin and cocaine and hide them in our grow. And then we'd have the dogs ignore the weed smell to go find the narcotics. So remarkable. Yeah. I would also, again, invite police in. Most of them have never been in a grow, fire, same thing. You know, this is what this place looks like in case there's ever a problem here or you there's a fire. You guys need to know what you're dealing with. So I was always very much in favor of educating, you know, those first responders so they know what they're getting into and it doesn't uh, instill any fear or, or confrontation. You know, if you guys ever have any questions, feel free to come by my facility and we'll chat about it. Yeah, I think that for sure your background, obviously, I think enables you with that information of kind of like how they might be viewing the situation, which I appreciative that you're obviously now on our side because we need more people to help kind of bridge that gap. Not to go, you know, obviously too into the weeds of your time at the sheriff's office here in Central Texas, but I do just, you know, for my own personal curiosity, like I kind of mentioned, you know, I was born and raised in Austin, grew up here, but I split living in Central Texas in Travis County and then Williamson County. And it's not a joke by any means. Like, I don't think you should ever joke with law enforcement, but I think the the scare was, well, if you're in Williamson County, you better not get caught because Wilco... Williamson County is just, it's a very intense, more conservative zone, district, region, compared to Travis County. Like, I feel like in Austin, the sentiment right now is we just officially got decriminalization. But to me growing up, I always gone to Zilker Park or Barton Springs with a joint. And, you know, I'm not selling. So I was just always possessing. And while I wouldn't say that was obviously officially decriminalized, legal by any means, they always look the other way. I remember going to Marley Fest as a young you know, teenager and having law enforcement officers walk around the perimeter of Marley Fest, downtown auditorium shores. And I remember thinking, oh my God, are these cops going to get us? And everybody's like, be cool. Like they're cool. They're fine. They were always, you know, kind of looking the other way, but obviously like, you know, I have you here. I've never had somebody from law enforcement on the podcast. I've never really gotten to talk to anybody in that capacity. So I'm just curious. Knowing that Austin was a little bit more kind of, you know, over the cannabis thing, like, was that still a part of your day-to-day policing? Like, were you busting people for cannabis? Was it more possession? Was it more on a larger scale? Like, what was the sentiment? And has that sentiment maybe evolved in Travis County since uh, your time? A few friends there or what that, you know, kind of looks like? In my years or so working for Travis County, I may be arrested a dozen people in total for just cannabis possession. And the majority of those were when I was in four months of training at the very beginning, because you just don't really have a choice of there's no officer discretion there. It's like, well, okay, you're, you're caught. In fact, I even had to deal with one of my wife's really good friends from high school on a call and, you know, in training. And he had a probably about an eighth on him and my training officer found it. And I just looked at him and went, sorry, dude. And he's like, Stan, it's okay. You know, like he knew how the, the game worked, but. No, I'd say for the most part, people don't really go looking for it. And 
even rookies at the beginning, rookie rookies are gung ho for anything. So they'd be like, hey, I busted these three kids with a you know quarter weed. I'm like, cool, dude. You took three hours of booking and it took four report calls in your district. Don't do that shit again. You know, it was one of those like, you know, the older guys would kind of shake out the younger guys. And don't get me wrong, there were guys that went out and hunted it specifically, but I'm like, again, you're the reason people hate cops, because there's a whole lot better things to do than go after, you know, people with a little bit of weed. During my last six months with Travis County, when I knew I was leaving, I would also ask my buddies, I'm like, hey, man, you got two family disturbances to go to, theoretically. One, they've all been drinking. One, they've been smoking weed. Which one do you want to go to? Every single one of them responded, well, I want to go to the one where they're smoking weed. Well, why? Well, because I'm probably going to have to fight one of the drunk people. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Which one's a bigger problem? And it wasn't something that was like, pursued by supervisors saying you need to go out and hunt cannabis or hunt people smoking weed while they're driving or whatever you know again i work mostly western travis county which is a lot of the lake you know way western travis county out in pace bend park and the lake and willie and all that and you know i mean have better things to do in fact i remember a very specific call in just had sat down to dinner with my partner and my sergeant called me on the phone they me my midnight partner had made a traffic stop on pace bend road and I said, okay, what's up? And he goes, do you see what your partner's out on? And I'm like, yeah, is that who I think it is? And he goes, yeah, get out there and unfuck that immediately. He'd stopped Willie's bus. Willie wasn't on the bus, but it was the band and everybody going out on tour. So I drive out the pavement road and get there and pull the rookie over. And I say, hey, what do you got? And he's like, the whole bus smells like weed. And I'm like, yeah, do you what's know that? what this is? He goes, yeah, it's Willie Nelson's bus. And I'm like, okay, cool. Here's what you're going to do. What'd you stop him for? They ran the stop sign. Okay, pull the driver off the bus. Give him his warning for running the stop sign because I guarantee you the only person sober on that bus is the driver because they're professionals. This is a professional transport company. And send him on his way unless you want to be on CNN tomorrow. And he looked at me kind of incredulously at first, like, are you serious? Like, we're not going to arrest this old bus full of people? I'm like, no, like, this is Willie Nelson's bus, right? So he did what I told him to do, and then cut to three weeks later, the bus is on the same tour, this time with Willie on board. It was right on the border at McCallum. This is when Willie got arrested for having five pounds of weed on board that bus. His punishment, recommended by the prosecutor, and five pounds is a state jail felony, okay? You know, that's a big deal. His recommended prosecution uh, deal was to sing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain in open court, and they would dismiss the charges. And that made the news. And then that night when my rookie partner showed up, it was on that call. I sent him that article. I was like, this is why you don't fuck with Willie Nelson. <laughs> they got a little concert out of it. Exactly. And he, he laughed about it. And I was like, yeah, dude, weed is not a priority. You know, again, this is Willie Nelson, the most famous man in Texas. All you got to do is make enemies. Like this is, this is not a productive law enforcement activity. Right. Yeah. I think that's obviously a little bit of like the story that, and we are not Willie Nelson. The majority of people are not Willie Nelson, right? So it's not to say that you should contest or like dangle that in front of law enforcement to try to, you know, which maybe nowadays I think it's kind of interesting. I just had a, a couple episodes ago, a gentleman who was doing a very large drug ring in New York state and he was arrested, incarcerated for many years, got out. He's now getting a license to operate in New York as the best attitude. He's like, what an opportunity. Like people used to get locked up for weed and not get to operate in a legal market. And here I am, my state's giving me, you know, access to license because of my history. But he was saying these, you know, police officers on the street of New York, they're, they don't care. They're just looking the other way. Like nobody has any, you know, concern about it. But I still think places like Texas where it really, unfortunately does depend on what county you're in, <laughs> what law enforcement officer pulls you over certainly how much you have yeah yeah so it's not to be like just do whatever you want and kind of ignore it because i think you know the reality is the laws in texas are really i don't want to say murky but they're they're like very weird and confusing yeah and so kind of in is you know to transition a little bit i know you were at the capitol this morning i don't know what's going to happen but texas for the listeners they kind of maybe have been paying attention and maybe some of them are from texas june of last year, the state imposed the smokable hemp ban officially because that's how the Supreme Court case turned out in Texas. But this has been something that's been going on really since hemp was legalized in Texas. My understanding is because they legalized hemp, but they didn't realize we were going to smoke hemp and hemp looks and smells like marijuana. So from a 
you know, policing perspective, I can understand how when you're on, you know, the side of the road and you smell something or you see something, you just don't know. And so I get their intention, but obviously it's had so many ripple effects when it comes to business because the way that the ruling came out, it's legal to possess, it's legal to sell, it's legal to cultivate. You just can't manufacture and process, which is like, what the fuck? It's taking, you know, the label. People don't understand. They're like, what does that mean? I'm like literally putting a sticker on your packaging is manufacturing that. Well, and nothing to stop you from ordering smokable head flour from any of the other 49 states. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Right, exactly. So it just hurts Texas operators. But so I didn't realize, which I think kind of came about because of the coalition, they were introducing a bill that would reverse that. And so I just wanted to kind of get some of your thoughts as being a cultivator. I know you said you're opening your facility here in the next couple of weeks, hopefully in Texas with your background coming from law enforcement, trying to kind of like bridge that gap of the discrepancy of kind of like how we ended up in the situation where we have a smokable hemp ban in Texas. And I know we're not the only state that has that. I believe Tennessee has been dealing with something. So I think North Carolina also had a smokable hemp ban at one point. Just kind of like, what's your take on that? What do you think is going to happen? And I think it's, I mean, it's a ridiculous statute to begin with, because I mean, just because you're not going to smoke it, you're going to vape it. You know, I mean, you can consume it other ways. It doesn't right. get smoked. Okay. So, and I agree, they kind of let let Pandora's box open when they did the hemp bill because they didn't understand that hemp flour is indistinguishable from, you know, the Delta 9 type flour that they're trying to keep people from using in the first place. But, you know, I mean, I remember talking to my SWAT team, a buddy who was running Travis County SWAT team in, in 2019. And I said, how are you guys dealing with this? And he goes, in Travis County, we're just not dealing with it at all. They just aren't going to take any tests. But like you were saying, there are other counties, Williamson County especially, where they have a different view of it, you know, and again, that's where the legislature needs to step in and go, okay, guys, you know, this is legal. Here's why. And I don't understand the pushback from law enforcement. Again, I, I know, no, I know it happens. Don't get me wrong. I'm not that naive, but no deputy I ever knew in eight years at Travis County ever had a physical fight, a vehicle pursuit, or even a foot pursuit with someone who was just smoking weed. You know, I mean, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't affect law enforcement. So why they have this harsh, hardcore, techno-prisoners attitude about it is it's something that I just don't understand the mentality of. Well, what's the reality of them being able to test? Because what I know, which I'm sure you know to some extent too, especially with your background coming from like regulated Colorado, don't even get me started on testing facilities and testing discrepancies. Like as a brand, when you send your product to get tested, you know, lab A versus lab B, that could change. I remember when Delta 8 got introduced, the labs were then struggling. Well, I don't know this is Delta 8 versus this is Delta 9. So to me, you can't even really tell on a test this is hemp versus this is marijuana. And I have kind of heard glimmers here and there of certain technology, maybe, or even training being, you know, implemented where it's empowering these law enforcement officers to be able to discern. And so I'm just curious what tools they have on the spot to be able to, and maybe they don't have tools right now to discern if this is marijuana or this is hemp. I mean, right now in Texas, as you know, which maybe the listeners do not know, but single cartridge of liquid is a felony, a full-on felony in Texas. If you are caught with a cartridge, a cartridge I sell now with Delta 8 in it, you know, and that Delta 8, like I said, very much could spike a test either way. I mean, we certainly tell our customers because even on a drug test, you can't really tell, is this Delta THC, is this Delta 9 THC? I was just talking to a customer about that. So we like we understand the difficulties of how to discern between the two. And now you're imposing this pressure on law enforcement officers to be able to Take a cartridge and say, well, I think this is Delta I have no idea. Hey, like, how are they supposed to analyze that? Like, is there? Bottom line is they can't. And I agree with you 100% on the testing. I was actually featured in a Vice News article in 2017 on testing in Washington because it has all the same problems you just described. Plus, you have nefarious labs that say, you know, we're willing to boost or change yes. numbers. You pay them. So, and don't get me started on the testing in general, but 
there are tests on the side of the road and like there would be for cocaine or heroin to find out, is this legal? Is this not? It's re- a lab test is required. Okay. Now I do know that they are working on, I haven't seen any of them in person, but they have some sort of breathalyzer equivalent to tell if someone has been smoking in like, say the last 30 minutes to an hour. So they're trying to wrap for like, you know, DUID, driving under the influence of drugs enforcement, that sort of thing. But I haven't seen any kind of, you know, tests. Normal sobriety tests will also suffice for something like that. There is nothing that can tell you what a flower is or what's in that vape card without a proper lab test. You need to do mass spectrometry or, you know, other high pressure, or what is it? High, high, high pressure liquid chromatography, something like HPLC, yeah. Yeah, and, and so you need to have those kind of lab tests to determine once and for all what that is. Which aren't even good in the lab, let alone bringing it on the street. It's like, yeah, good luck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how are you expected as a law enforcement officer? And this is what I was talking about at the hip, hip conference was that officer on the street has zero way to determine, is this a legal product? And in my mind, like you were talking about, does this is the smell of marijuana and probable cause for search now in and my answer to that is no, because 99 out of 100 cannabinoids are legal at this point. The only one that's illegal is Delta 9. So you're going to be able to tell me you can tell that this is, you know, Delta 9 by the smell or by the appearance or whatever it is. I mean, the answer is absolutely not. Okay, maybe this is a hot topic question, but I'm curious. I don't think you're on the record because you've spent many years now away from law enforcement. But on the topic you brought up, driving under the influence, intoxication, What are your thoughts on that? Because I think as a cannabis industry, we glorify like cannabis isn't that bad for you. It's great. Alternative to alcohol, alternative to opioids. But like when you're high, you can have impairment. I mean, maybe it's not as damaging or negligible as alcohol, but I'm also not a doctor, so I'm not able to quantify it like in chemistry or in biology of like, this is actually what happens when you eat 50 milligrams of whatever. Now you have the overlay of a lot of these products are legal due to hemp. And so there's marijuana regulation, but there's not so much hemp regulation when it comes to for more context, right? Like I have customers come in and they buy a pre-roll. Well, can I smoke this, you know, in the car? And I'm thinking, well, one, it looks like a joint. And so if somebody drives by and sees you smoking a joint, it's their interpretation of if they want to pull you over and deal with that. It's not psychoactive, but maybe if you got a Delta 8 pre-roll, it could be like, how should we as an industry maybe approach that part of the conversation so that we can kind of work with law enforcement because you don't want people on the roads who are causing chaos. I would agree with you. Um, some of the points you've made earlier in the sense of, you know, when I'm high, I'm not aggressive. I feel not, you know, incriminating myself, but the times that I have driven maybe under the influence with a little bit of cannabis, let's say a microdose, I feel like I'm a more focused driver. You know, I'm definitely not speeding. I'm slow. I'm trying to pay attention, but. Yeah, sometimes I've been really high and I shouldn't drive and someone's going to take my keys. And so how do you even handle that as this law enforcement officer when it comes to dealing with this whole new category of consumption? I like to, to, to quote a study that I read in, I think it was 2014 or 2015, that was conducted by the National Institute of Insurance Highway Safety. Okay, And they did a study on cannabis people, cannabis and driving. And what they found was generally it's not as dangerous as alcohol and people tend to drive about five miles an hour slower than they normally would. Now, again, that's not to promote smoking and driving. Right. And where these standardized field sobriety tests come in is, you know, you're going to see want to see the totality of their behavior. Are they able to respond to your questions in a timely manner? Are they making sense? Are they able to keep their balance? These are things that obviously you need your faculties to be able to operate a vehicle safely. And if you're impaired, those tests, those standard tests they do for the drug, you know, the, this one and the walk and turn and one leg stand, those tests don't just test for alcohol. They test for impairment on any central nervous depressant. Okay. So it works for pills. It works for cannabis. It works for anything that's going to kind of bring your body down. So again, I mean, the standard per se is five nanograms of THC is intoxicated, which is an absurd amount. I mean, you can get five nanograms in your blood just by breathing in and smelling some cannabis. You know, that's yeah, not secondhand smoke. Pretty much all of us that are consumers have five nanograms in their blood at all times, if not quite a bit more. But that doesn't mean you're impaired. Right. Right. So, again, I think the combination of the person's behavior, their responses to questioning, if they're going to take a sobriety test, like 
I would have no problem taking a sobriety test even after consuming, you know, a joint because I know my faculties. I know I'd be able to pass the test and I know, you know, I wouldn't be confused for being impaired. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think that is going to have to be more of the conversation because I do still think, I mean, even just going back to using Travis and Williamson County as the example, I wouldn't say everybody explicitly in Travis County is probably pro-cannabis. And I wouldn't say everybody in Williamson County is anti-cannabis, but certainly they've kind of, you know, created attitudes for themselves. But you now have people whose like predisposition is maybe to deal with it in a certain way for favor or against something. So it's like, how do you make people normalize to it? I think hemp's legalization has been doing a tremendous job in that because it's kind of, especially in places like Texas, saying like, hey, look, a little bit of THC is okay. Like people are okay. Even what's going on with Delta 8 right now in session and even just the past couple of years, I think from a legislative perspective, you know, it was like, well, we don't want legal weed because people are going to get high. And now people have Delta 8 and it's like, and people are okay. Like people are fine. Well, it's fine. Yes. Yeah, that, the world isn't ending, but I, I forget the state that is doing this. It might be Massachusetts. You might be familiar with this. I thought it was just really interesting. I wanted to kind of, you know, put it in front of you for some fodder. There is a police officer, I don't know if it's like a cohort or if it's like, you know, extended to like their whole city or they're just kind of testing it, but they are actually hosting trainings with cannabis impairment going on so that these officers can see different stages of consumption, right? So I saw like the, I was like an article explaining like, hey, you know, this city is looking for people who want to smoke with cops, not the cops smoking, but like... No, 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 right. no, and they, they do the similar things in training for alcohol. They'll have people show up and drink one drink and they'll have somebody drink six drinks and so they can see the differences in it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fine idea. And again, there's a big difference between smoking half a joint and taking 27 dabs in a row and not being able to open your eyes. You no, know? I mean, so I, I think that's a great idea. I mean, it takes people who are going to be pretty brave to go smoke with cops I would think, you know, that's a little weird, especially at the beginning. But again, it it helps us all be more, I think, as an industry, more responsible because we're telling people, okay, hey, look, there's a limit to this. We all know that at a certain point, people are going to be unsafe. We don't want that. We don't want that reflected on our industry. And again, that goes back to what I was always being open and friendly to police and fire because I want them. I want to take that stigma away. Yes. No. And I think that is like to round out that point, right? Maybe... I don't know how to even like begin to approach law enforcement in Central Texas to be like, hey, come into my shop. Like I remember the early days when we opened our brick and mortar, we were really just selling oils. And I remember our team started hearing about hemp flower. And when I would see pictures of it, I was like, you guys, this literally looks like marijuana. This is like really sketch. And at the time, we were one of just a handful of brands. And so we were very identifiable, you know, as people who were doing this. It wasn't like now everybody's selling it. It was like those people are doing something in cannabis. And so if there were any questions, I just felt like I had a target on my back. And I remember when we started bringing flour into our store, I was nervous like all the time. Every time I would see a cop car drive by, I'm like, oh my God, today's the day they're going to come into this. And they they know we have it now and they're going to question everything. And that has not happened. I have not had any run-ins, but I don't know how to go. You know, I, I don't know anybody to go be like, hey, come, come into my store, you know, unless they come in off duty, which I've certainly experienced and interacted with like in a handful of scenarios. It's just not as accessible versus like to your point, okay, who can I perhaps invite in? And I know we've been talking about session a little bit just because it's going on here. And I think when I saw you last at the Capitol, for our hemp lobby day, you were talking about inviting your senator from your district and representative out. I had the pleasure of having my senator's staff come in just a couple of days ago. And that was a really cool experience, again, because they might, my district is very pro-cannabis. I'll put that out there. So they weren't like, we don't know what this is. We got to have questions. But they definitely had questions. And for people who are in the Capitol, who are you know getting lunch with other staffers who might be a little bit disfavoring this you know kind of stuff. I thought that, that was a cool opportunity to be able to like extend that branch to say, hey, come in. You know, I'm in your district. I'm a licensed business owner. This is how we do things. Let me walk you through it. Let me be a friendly face and just treat them like people, which I think is so hard for us as an industry. Sometimes it's like, ah, oh, you're the, you know, law enforcement officer. Oh, you're the regulator. Yeah, you're the whatever. It's like, well, yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, by, by do, acting the opposite way and being more friendly and open, we're shining a light on something that 
like you said, they might have a preconceived notion of what we actually, sure. we're all drug dealers and this, that, and the other thing. But by showing the light and being friendly, it's like, no, let me show you how this actually works. This is real legit business. This is real medicine. This helps people. And, you know, just puts a different spin on it and it lends legitimacy to it and helps them really start to change their minds about it. Yes, which I think is obviously important. It's important because I think if we're kind of scared to have those relationships, I think then you sometimes end up maybe in scenarios like, Kind of what we're dealing with in Texas right now, where there's still some reluctancy. I look at states like California, where their regulators don't really work with the industry very well. And my, my fear is that Texas will continue down this path where we're kind of we're working on the same topic, but we're working like opposing each other instead of working together, which is really what I would hope to happen. It's like, hey, let's sit down. This is what the legislation says. This is what the regulation says. This is what your role is. Okay, you're trying to enforce here. This is what this means. And so... PSA to anybody who has any connections or anything like that here in Central Texas, we want to bridge that gap and have those conversations. So, you know, obviously keeping that line of communication open. But I want to ask one kind of, you know, final question, tangent thought, you know, just knowing that you were growing in some of these legal states, you're very well versed of like, you know, what marijuana is versus what hemp is. I'm curious because you mentioned this before we were recording and I think it's a really hot topic. And so I just wanted to kind of get your take on it as well. THCA flower. So to me, to I'm sure some of the listeners, they're like, THCA flower, isn't that marijuana? For those of you who didn't listen to a couple episodes ago, I had a cannabis lawyer on. We talked about the legalities of THCA. So that episode is packed full of the legalities, but more from your perspective, from the, I guess, like application side, growing it, your understanding of it, how is that going to help or confuse Texas lawmakers and law enforcement officers? Well, it will definitely compound the problem for sure. But I kind of equate it to the same thing. Like, so as soon as recreational passed in Colorado and started in 2014, for a period there, you had a dual system. You had the medical system and you had the recreational system. Medical plants had to be tagged blue. Recreational had to be tagged yellow. They could be the exact same strain, but the one was blue, one was yellow, and never the two shall meet, okay? And that's kind of how the THCA flower is the way I look at it. If you grow THCA flower in a rec state for rec purposes, you obviously can't sell that as hemp flower. But if you grow it at that same flower on a hemp farm, that's THCA flower and qualifies as hemp. So it's kind of analogous to that same situation. The difference being not a lot of people are aware of of how THCA flower works. You know, I had to explain this to people like, you know, I I grabbed the last hundred tests from my farm in Washington and went over them. And of the hundred, only one of them was over the 0.3 Delta 9 limit. And I said, okay, well, obviously, you know, that shows that we're basically growing the same flower, guys. It's just one is in the rec system and one is in the hip system. Yeah, I think that analogy of how which I don't think a lot of people maybe realize that, but that was really fascinating to me. I think Colorado has changed since then because I've been toward a couple grows maybe like a year or two ago and they were talking about that transition, how it's like you have the same plant. It's just got different customers essentially. And so they had to be tagged different, but they had to be tagged different even from like the seed cultivation phase. Yeah. Versus, hey, I grew a hundred plants and oh, I actually only had 30 medical customers this month and 60, you know, recreation. It's like, well, you grew those, you know, 30 for medical, but they stayed medical. It's like. Yeah. Put them over there. Yeah, no, they they have updated it since then and really yes. has to do with the taxes people pay versus yes. rec. But yeah, for, for about a year and a half or so when I was up there, it was, it was ridiculous because you had the same plants and you had to treat them differently. You're treating them the same, but they're just tagged differently. Again, one can't go to what the other one. You can never cross the streams, but. That's, again, kind of what we have with the GDHCA market currently. Which is kind of where things are, I think, hitting, you know, a point, which is really interesting. And maybe we can kind of like end on this thought and and this like, you know, just like future thinking problem we have on our hands. I think I was talking to you offline a little bit about the perception. I think since doing this podcast, people used to look at me like, oh, poor you, you're in hemp. You can't sell these, you know, high THC products. And while no, I can't sell you a cartridge nope. of Delta 9, because that is still a felony in Texas, I can sell you plenty of other things that can get you high if you want to smoke, if you want to eat an edible, et cetera. And so now I think you're seeing the industry kind of open up and recognize this 
nuance between hemp and marijuana, which really is only classified by 0.3% adults and THC on a dry weight basis. Like that piece of language is really the just the differentiating point. People are like, are they different plants? I'm like, to your point, no, not really. It's just this THC percentage on a dry weight basis. But the point I want to make and kind of get your thoughts on people are waiting for Texas to legalize. I have now kind of come to the you know, acceptance and now promoting Texas is already legalized. We well, have whatever you want for with this. Purpose. <laughs> yeah, it looks different. But again, I think we're kind of helping reshape what federal legalization might look like because of hemp's federal legalization. But kind of everything we've talked about today, right? You know, we're helping change people's minds, but also it's creating more confusion, I think, for our operators when it comes to enforcement, when it comes to regulation, legislation. So I'm curious what your take or thoughts are on kind of where Texas is currently sitting when it comes to, you know, our compassionate use program is set at 1%. They're hoping to get that improved. Texas is sitting with smokable hemp ban. (laughs) We have legislation that's anti-Delta-8, anti-synthetics. But then at the same time, you know, you have opportunities like THCA. We do have the abundance of Delta-8 and other, you know, psychoactive cannabinoids like hemp drug Delta-9 right now on the market. I just don't even know what legalization looks like anymore. I mean, I know what I can, you know, assume is going to happen, but I don't think it's no longer, okay, you've got hemp and you've got marijuana. It's like, who takes over and and what is that really going to look like from a operator perspective, I guess, if that makes sense. So I'm curious your thoughts. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm so new to the Texas politics of it that I can only kind of look into a crystal ball. But the feeling that I get is Texas is going to drag their heels until something happens on a federal level. They're mm-hmm. kind of using that as as an excuse to say, well, we don't want to fight the federal government. And, you know, that's kind of a bullshit excuse, especially from Texas, who makes a, makes a point of being, we're Texas, we'll do what we want to, federal government be damned. But you're going to let 37 other states legalize med or rec before Texas? I mean, that, that, that argument doesn't fly. So that's my point. Why do we even need med or rec right now? Because we have everything you need from hemp and hemp based federally. I was about to say, we have this kind of golden little opportunity here where again, the, the, the laws haven't necessarily, but we used to call it the letter of the law and the spirit of the law when I was a deputy. So letter of the law, everything that we're talking about, it, it, we're in this golden opportunity zone. Spirit of the law, I'm not sure exactly that that's what they intended, but I'm all for taking advantage and exposing people to this legal regulated market that we have. Even if it's for a short period of time, you can get people interested and happy with the way things are going. And if things end up trying to be changed here in next legislative session in 2025, people will be more educated about it and not want to give up what they've already been enjoying. So I kind of see it as that the more they let us do, the more this is out in the open, the less people will want to regress and go backwards. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.